The scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another come and he comes, and to my slave do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. What would it take, you think, to impress Jesus? You'd think it would take a lot to impress Jesus, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? In John chapter 1, it's what we, did, we read through on Christmas Eve. We read that Jesus was in the beginning with God. He is God. He was the active agent in creating everything from nothing. John said there's nothing that has been made that he didn't make. So he's been there. He's done that. It would take a lot to impress Jesus. I mean, Jesus could be, he could be the ultimate one-upper if he wanted to. You know what a one-upper is, right? One-upper is the person, whatever, whatever story you have, they have a better story. Whatever you have, they've got something bigger. They can one-up whatever. I mean, Jesus could be the ultimate one-upper. What impresses you? He can one-up that. Something that impresses me um, are amazing athletes. I mean, these guys that can, they run so fast, jump so high. It's like, they make me think, how am I even the same species as these guys? So that's impressive to me. Jesus could look at someone like that and go, well, I mean, I walk on water. So, I mean, right? What impresses you? Um, musical talent can be very impressive, right? You, you, you hear someone play or sing, and it brings tears to your, your eyes, and you go, so impressive. Jesus could be like, you know, I created angel choirs. Wait till you hear them. Artistic ability. I'm not a real art aficionado, but Michelangelo's sculptures always amazed me. You know, the hammer and chisel, he made these just impressive, I don't know how else to say it, sculptures. Jesus could be like, you know, I created beauty itself. You know, the thing the artist is trying to catch a glimpse of, I created not only what they're trying to catch a glimpse of, but your ability to appreciate what they're trying to catch a glimpse of. If we're impressed by feats of engineering, uh, architectural feats, building complex machines, Jesus could say, I built everything from nothing, no raw materials. How could anyone possibly impress Jesus? 
Well, today in the book of Matthew, we're going to meet the only person that the scriptures tell us actually did that. A guy that made Jesus go, wow, that's impressive. The man is a a Roman centurion. We read about him here and we read about him in the book of Luke. Luke gives us a few more details. I want to introduce this guy to you just a little bit. Some we know from the book of Luke and some we know from history that tells us what a Roman centurion was like. So that you know who this guy is who who sins for or goes to meet Jesus. Um, Because he was a Roman centurion, we know he was a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. Uh, That means he... To put it in American military terms, I've heard him described this way. A centurion was a cross between a first sergeant and a captain. Uh, I would actually add to that hybrid local sheriff, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But he was not born to the aristocracy, so he, wasn't, he wouldn't have been an upper-class guy. Uh, he was somebody who was either signed up as a regular recruit, or maybe he was even forced into service at the beginning. And he hadn't earned some really high commission in the army. Um, His rank is called centurion because he he leads a detachment of soldiers that historically, sort of traditionally, was a hundred men. But he could have led, you know, in the high double digits, a few dozen guys all the way up to a few hundred guys in the Roman army. Uh, Centurions were were stationed in places. This guy is either in Capernaum or very near Capernaum. And he would have been stationed there for a long time. This was not, you know, the American military four years in Germany, right? Like, like when I was born. Um, the, uh, this guy is a long-term assignment. And the Romans stationed centurions for a, for a long time in one place because the Romans were the masters at making conquered people sort of be okay with being conquered people. They had figured out that happy people are a lot easier to rule than unhappy people. And so this guy, he would be stationed, if he served for 25 years, he would get full Roman citizenship, and he'd be stationed in this one place for a long time. He'd get to know the community, get to know the families, be like community service-minded, so that people would have this attitude toward him. If we've got to have a Roman centurion, we want this guy. That's what I mean. He's kind of like a local sheriff who's a part of the community, but still in, you know, the peace officer also. Luke tells us by the time we meet this guy, he's already built a synagogue for the Jews in his community, which lets us know he's been there a while to get that done. And it, to build a synagogue. He knows uh, the, the culture, the religion of the area. And Luke tells us he's very well thought of um, by the people where he's stationed. Now that being said, it, in a lot of ways, this guy is very, very different from Jesus. He's a Gentile. And Jesus, obviously, is a Jew. Um, he's a warrior. I mean, he's a soldier. And Jesus, at least in his first advent, 
as a man of peace. He, uh, and he's the leader of an occupying force. And what I mean by that is, this land where he serves, we call it Palestine today. He's out in Galilee, near a place called Capernaum. This is part of the land that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, we call the nation of Israel. God says it's theirs. And this guy is part of the occupying force who rules that on behalf of some Gentiles. And Matthew has already told us that Jesus is the one who was born to be king of that area. King of the Jews. But this is the guy that impresses Jesus. He's been keeping the peace in one area, sort of with a mixture of um, intimidation on one hand, where I control the Roman army around here, and I have the ability to call many more. So there's intimidation on one hand, and also community service on the other. And this, this Roman, this Gentile, is the one who's going to impress Jesus. And he does it in a way that you and I can emulate. It's almost like you want to impress Jesus? And like, pay attention. Because you can do it the way this guy did it. To understand how he impressed Jesus, we have to understand the problem that, that led him toward seeking out Jesus first. We read about that at the beginning of the passage. What has made this guy seek out Jesus is he's got a servant who's very dear to him who has fallen ill. Um, I, I say the servant is dear to him. In the Greek, there's a, in Greek, there's a couple different words that you can use for slave or bond servant. Doulos is the most common. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word pais, which is a word that means a, a, a dear servant. He cares about this guy. And this, this servant that he cares about is sick, but the way he what describes the problem lets us know that what he really wants fixed is this guy's suffering. His, uh, excuse me, his, uh, this servant is, this translation said he's paralyzed and he's in terrible anguish. He wants the pain to go away for this guy that he cares about. So it's not that he comes to Jesus saying, hey, I've got this slave I'm not getting any work out of, and it'd be good for me if you'd fix this guy. He wants his pain to go away. And he really doesn't ask Jesus to come and, and fix that. Hold on for a second. I'm tired of hissing at you guys this morning. I promise that's accidental. Try that. Um, where we're, oh, he never really gets around to asking Jesus to come and heal him. Jesus just volunteers. In verse 7, he says, hey, I've got the servant. He's in terrible pain and anguish. Jesus says, verse 7, I'm going to come to your house and heal him. And the way he responds to that, the words he says, lets us know some stuff about this guy that Jesus finds very impressive. There's really, there's two things in this centurion that Jesus finds impressive. They're probably one thing. His humility and his faith. Or maybe we could say just his humble faith. I want you to see those two things, and then we'll look at how impressed Jesus is by it and what he says. First, I want you to notice with me the, the humility 
of this centurion. To know what we're looking for, if we're looking for humility, we have to know what the opposite of humility is. We have to know what pride is before we can recognize humility. And this isn't a sermon about pride and humility, so I'll make this quick. But in short, pride is a a negative kind of self-focus or an inappropriate kind of self-focus. Pride is when I see my life about me, mainly about me. What I have, what I can get, what I do, um, what's in it for me? Um, pride can pride can be um, a negative self-focus to what I don't have, what I've never learned, what I haven't been able to do, what I can't get, what my problems are. But it's just it's about me. That's pride. Humility, on the other hand, is a so pride is a is an inaccurate assessment of myself. Humility is an accurate seeing myself the way God sees me. And that will always result in me thinking of others before I think of myself or putting others first. That's, that's humility. This guy is, here's how we see his, his humility. First, I see his humility in the way or the fact that he approach, approaches Jesus even, seeks Jesus out for the reason that he does. By this time, if we would go back into chapter 4, we would see in, in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, Jesus has already had a wide-ranging healing ministry that everybody knows about. Okay, so he's heard about this healing. But you think about this. Jesus only ministered for, for parts of three years, and not all of that was in, out in Galilee. So how many chances was somebody going to have to get an audience with Jesus? to be in front of Jesus, to be able to ask a favor of Jesus. You're probably not going to get many chances. You're probably going to get one chance. This guy seeks out Jesus and uses his one chance to get something done for someone else. I love that. That shows humility. Then after Jesus has offered to go with him into his house, hey, I'll go with you and, and heal this guy. In verse 8, the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to enter my house. Just give the order from here and my servant will be healed. There's humility in that response. First, he uses the same exact words that John the Baptist used earlier in this book. John the Baptist is like the Bible's go-to picture of humility apart from Jesus himself. In the New Testament, John the Baptist is always pictured as a, as a very humble person. He said, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. He used those same words. But when he says, You don't have to come to my house. There's great humility in that. Here's why. Jesus is super famous already. Everybody knows he's the traveling healer, miracle worker guy. They don't know everything about Jesus, but he's famous. If you can get a famous person to come to your house, are you going to get something out of that deal? Nothing else. You're going to get a lot of attention. You're always going to have a great story. Tell us, what was, what was it like when Jesus was at your house? He doesn't need any of that. He's not trying to get anything out of this thing for himself. He just wants the suffering to go away in his friend. Humility. 
Also, because he's built a synagogue, because he knows the, the religion of the Jews, Judaism, he understands this. We talked about this with the leper um, two weeks ago now. Uh, their cleanness and uncleanness was a big deal in the Jewish religion. Because he's a Gentile, because his uh, friend, his, his, his bond servant is sick, I think he knows Jesus will become unclean if he comes into his house. And he, this is him saying, hey, don't, you don't have to become unclean on my account. I think he's saying, if you, if you become unclean serving me, that's going to take you off the healing market for a while. You're supposed to be isolated. This won't be best for everybody if you become unclean on my account. You don't have to do that. Even though he has something he really, really wants. He's thinking about what's best for Jesus, what's best for others. This is a humble, humble guy. I think it would have been perfectly reasonable for this guy to, to call in a Jewish favor here. I don't care if this guy gets unclean. Look at what I've done for the Jewish community. I think you can let me borrow the healer for a day to get something done for myself. But he's not like that at all. He's very humble. And that's part of what impresses Jesus but only because humility is what allows us to have faith. And this guy's humility, an accurate assessment of who he is in the grand scheme of things, allows him to believe what he believes about Jesus. And it is this man's faith that Jesus finds impressive. What he believes about Jesus is what makes Jesus say, wow. It reads this way. The second part of of verse 8, he says to Jesus, Instead of coming to my house, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to that one, come and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. It's really important that we catch what these words tell us he believes about Jesus, because that's what Jesus finds impressive. It's not just that this man believes Jesus can heal from a distance, which would have been impressive enough. There's way more going on here than that. All right. As a career soldier, this guy understands the chain of command. You know what the chain of command is, right? If you've ever had any military service, I don't know how many of us have. Thank you for serving if you have. But you know chain of command. What this guy says is, I understand chain of command. And Jesus, you do too. Here's what he says. Because I understand the chain of command, I know when I give orders to somebody that's under me in the, on the tree of authority, I don't have to go babysit everybody to know that what I command gets done. And I'm under authority. The, the, my superiors back in Rome, they send orders. They don't stand over my shoulder and watch. They don't have that kind of time. They would just do it themselves. That's what I'm here for. That's the way the chain of command works. You give orders, they get followed. Because that's, that's just the way the chain of command works. Now, what does that mean he believes about Jesus? First and most obviously, he apparently believes Jesus is very high up on the, on the universe's chain of command. Because 
because of what he necessarily believes is under Jesus' authority. What he says here is, the way I give orders to soldiers, you give orders to things like disease, paralysis. You tell pain to retreat. You tell disease to quit it. How high up on the chain, the, the universe's chain of command do you have to be if other people's individual bodies, the systems of our bodies, organs, cells, things like that, are under your direct chain of command? Authority only goes as far as what you actually control, right? Like, I, I can't uh, order some other church here in town what songs they're going to sing next week. Right? I, there's, just, there's no chain of command there. The centurion can't order a centurion in a different part of the empire to do something. Authority only goes as far as your control does. And this guy seems to understand that Jesus heals from authority. Jesus doesn't use incantations. You know what incantations are? Incantations is... You know, you, where you conjure up spirits, things that you, you, you don't control, but you ask some spirits someplace to do something for you. And if you ask just the right way, then maybe they have to do what you want them to do. That's an incantation. Jesus doesn't heal like that. Jesus doesn't heal with medicine. He says, you heal with authority. You heal because you say, be fixed. And whatever it is, gets fixed. This guy seems to understand Jesus is very near the top of the universe's chain of command, right? But don't miss what else he says. This is really interesting to me that this guy's gathered all this. Look at the beginning of verse 9. He says to Jesus, I also am a man under authority. Doesn't that mean he also knows that Jesus is under some authority? It's like he's got some like beginning knowledge of the Trinity, right? That, that, that Jesus is at the top of the authority scale, the organizational chart for the universe, but there's somebody even above him. Now, how would he gather that? Here's how I think he came to that knowledge. This guy got stationed out in Galilee, which is nowheresville. And he's decided to be there and do the best he can because that's where he was told to be. And he operates under authority where he's at. I think he looks at Jesus and he knows this guy can command disease to be healed and pain to stop hurting. This guy's got, he's got authority over everything on the earth. But he wouldn't be out here slumming it in Galilee of all places with the sick and the weak, and the poor, and the dirty, unless he was under orders to be here. Somebody with this kind of power, if he wasn't stationed here, would be at least in Jerusalem and maybe in Rome, telling Caesar to stand aside, son, or I'll turn your insides to jelly, because they're under my, under my authority. He looks at Jesus and says, I know you're at the top of the power structure. But you're under orders or you wouldn't be here. I mean, isn't that the story of the incarnation of Jesus, of him coming to earth? 
creator of all things, comes to earth to do his Father's will and slum it with the likes of us. And somehow this centurion gets it. He understands it. And that's what makes Jesus go, wow. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Your Bible might say he was, he marveled at the words of this centurion. Only time Jesus is positively amazed in all the New Testament. There was one other time he was negatively amazed at people's lack of faith. This is the only time. The only time Jesus is ever amazed, it's not, it's not because of what someone does. Not directly, anyway. It's not because of somebody's generosity. It's not because of somebody's goodness. It's because of faith. Because he believed that in who Jesus was, and then catch this, his belief in Jesus combined with his humility put him to work on behalf of someone else. And Jesus, here's what Jesus does. He praises the one who praises him. He praises this centurion. He doesn't worship him, don't get me wrong. Praises to speak well of. You know, every person who's redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and, and, and goes to heaven someday is going to experience this. When the roll is called up yonder, remember that song? That's a real thing. Jesus is going to call your name in front of every saved person who ever was. And that's going to be praising the one who has praised him. Jesus does that with, with this man. He, he hears what he says and he's amazed. And he goes, hey everybody, listen. This guy gets it. I want you to be like this centurion. He's got better faith than any Jew I've ever run into. The Gentiles shouldn't even be looking for someone like me, for a Messiah, for the Son of God. The Jews should. They're missing me. This guy gets it. I want you to be like this centurion. That was a humble faith, believes in me, and that faith puts him to work on behalf of someone else. And then in verse 10, excuse me, then in verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and just as you believe, it will be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very hour. I skipped two verses right there. Did you notice that? There are two verses in between when Jesus gets impressed in verse 10, and Jesus tells this guy his servant will be healed in verse 13. And because they don't really follow the plot line, the guy approaches Jesus, they have a conversation. Jesus gets impressed. Jesus heals the servant. It doesn't really follow that. It seems extra. It's kind of flyover country as we read this, but it's not. I think verses 11 and 12 are the most important verses in this passage. So I want to save them for the end. But before we talk about them, I want to ask you a question. Try to see if you can just answer this in your head. Why did Jesus decide to heal this man's servant? Why did Jesus heal the centurion's servant? Is it because the centurion had so much faith that he said the right words 
And because of his faith, like Jesus had no choice whether or not to, to heal this guy, that this guy's faith was enough to make Jesus heal his servant? No. That is not the message and the lesson of this story. Jesus heals the centurion's servant. It's like a highlighter. You ever use a highlighter? Make something stick out? Jesus heals this man's servant because that's the highlighter that draws our attention to this guy's faith. Jesus heals the centurion's servant so that all the people there listening to them understand the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. Jesus heals, or hears of the faith of this centurion. Then he heals the centurion's servant in order to highlight for us the kind of faith he's looking for in us. And here's why I think that's really important to understand. It will keep you from being disillusioned by a misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian and who Jesus is and what he promises. There are way too many heartbroken Christians, or at least people who call themselves Christians, who get mad at God because he doesn't keep promises that he never made in the first place. (laughs) Here's what I mean. If the story here is this guy had so much faith Jesus had to heal his servant and do what he wanted. Here's what happens. What happens when it is your loved one? When it's somebody you care about. And you go to Jesus on behalf of them and say, I believe you are who you said you were. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my sins. I believe you can heal. God, will you heal my servant, my child, my spouse, my friend, me? And what happens then when that healing doesn't happen? If I believe that what this teaches is if I have this kind of faith, Jesus will heal, then when that healing doesn't happen, I can only come to one of a couple of conclusions. Either first, there's something wrong with me. I don't believe right. I don't believe enough. I'm too naughty. I've been too bad. Or I believe there's something wrong with him. Or I believe there's something wrong with this. Maybe this is all just made up. It doesn't work the way it's said. He didn't heal my kid. This centurion, a man who knows what it's like to operate in the chain of command, also knows this about the chain of command. You can never command your superior to do your bidding. (laughs) And sometimes they say no, even when you do not understand why. All right, right, anybody have military service in here? Go ahead, raise raise your hand. All right, I'm I'm guessing those of you with military service had some sort of experience where you were being told, you were doing something because you were, had been told, and you looked at some other possibility and went, it would make a lot more sense if we didn't do this, but instead we did that. And maybe you even asked, hey Sarge, hey, I got a good idea. Since this is 
looks dumb. Like, this makes no sense. How about we do something that does make sense? And what would you get told? Hey, why don't you shut up and get back to work? Do what you're told. Listen, the God of the universe is much more trustworthy than the American military. And, and, and we, we won't understand any better sometimes why he does what he does. But he does say, he does say no. He does say no. Jesus healed this man's servant after he heard of this man's faith to highlight the faith he wants in us. And listen, healing this man's servant is not the best thing that happened in this passage, and it's not particularly close. It's just the attention getter. Now I want to show you verses 11 and 12. All, everything was a setup to this point. So when Jesus heard verse 10, he was amazed And he said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith in anyone in Israel. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. Read that as all over the world. They'll come from the east and the west to share the banquet, the feast. Your Bible might say recline at the table, be in close fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just announced the kingdom's open to everybody. People from the east, people from the west. But the sons of the kingdom, some of my people, Jesus said, the Jews, will, they'll be thrown out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom is open to everyone. According to verses 10 and 11, who gets into the feast? People who have faith like this centurion. People have faith like this centurion. It's not what family you were born into. It's not what nationality you are. People who have faith like this centurion. Those without it will be left out in anguish and remorse. Now here's what's awesome about that announcement. To this centurion. Why did this centurion say you don't have to come to my house? Was it because I'm the worstest and nobody ever comes to my house and I think I'll just go eat worms? No. It was, hey, I'm able, I'm humble enough to see your, your religious views and your, uh, your culture through your eyes and you think I'm unclean because I'm a Gentile. I'm like, I don't get it, but like I get it. And so you don't have to be made unclean. There has to be a separation between Jew and Gentile, Jesus, and I understand that. I just want you to heal my, my servant. Make his pain go away and you and I can stay separate and then be fine. And Jesus says, hey, everybody, let me tell you something. When you have faith like this guy, that separation goes away. Somebody like this centurion gets an invitation to the banquet. He's going to sit right down at the table, not just with some Jew, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, Table fellowship was a very special thing. And this has to be eternal life. You know how I know? Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been dead for thousands of years by the time he says this. This is 
the separate, you believe like this guy, the separation between Jew and Gentile goes away and, and the inequality and the, the unfair stuff goes, it's just so good, you're going to sit right down with the heroes of the faith, you're going to share a banquet forever. And faith like this guy punches your ticket to that banquet. And let me ask you, what is the best benefit Jesus announced that day? That when you go home, your servant's not going to be in pain? Or because you've believed like this, you get an invitation to the banquet. And it's not close. Because that servant died. He didn't die that day because Jesus healed him. But he's dead now. When the centurion went home, I hope he went to that guy and said, Hey, did you suddenly get better about 2 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday? Uh-huh. Jesus healed you. But let me tell you what else he told me. If you believe in him, we get an invitation to the, to the celestial eternal banquet with the heroes of the faith. And that would happen whether Jesus said yes or no to the healing. The healing is just a highlighter. So we pay attention to the kind of healing that impresses Jesus. I want you to know this morning, I think faith is still impressive to God. The humble faith where somebody like you or me have to admit we're not okay. We need someone else. We need something. We're not good enough. The kind of faith that takes us to to Jesus. Now, we have more information than this centurion had because we're on the other side of the cross. Here's what you and I have to believe about Jesus. Not just that he can heal from a distance. Not just that he was stationed in Galilee by his father. We have to believe that he went to the cross and, and bore the punishment our sins deserve. But if we believe that, we have the promise of healing. I mean eternal healing. You will live even though you die. And you come to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And he says, Hey, everybody! Hey, listen, I want you to know John just came to believe that. And there's a party in heaven every time it happens. Hey, everybody, listen, Stuart gets it. He gets it. He just punched his ticket. He's going to be here. And everybody goes, wow. Another one snatched from the, from the clutches of the evil one in the fires of hell. No matter what happens, no matter how this body goes down, and it's going to someday if he doesn't come back first, I will live even though I die because he has guaranteed my place alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just by simple, humble faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for stationing your Son upon the earth. 
with the sick and the weak and the dirty and the poor and the outcast. God, you sent him here not just to heal physically. You sent him here to heal physically so that we would listen and know it was him. And when he says, this is the kind of faith I want people to have, I pray we are listening. Thank you, Father, that humble faith gives us entrance into the eternal feast. And God, in the meantime, I pray that that kind of humble faith like this centurion would put us to work on behalf of others, that they might have faith, that they might be comforted, that they might be strengthened and sharpened and grow, and that other people uh, might know where real healing, eternal healing comes from. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.